Hello and welcome to Epicenter Bitcoin episode 31. Today is August 4th and today's episode is all about Ethereum and the Ether sale which is currently going on. The first part of today's episode features an interview I did with Gavin Wood. He is the CTO of the Ethereum project and the lead developer of the C++ client. I recorded that interview last week on July 30th here in Berlin. The second part of the episode, I talk about uh, the Ether sale from an investment perspective. I'll talk things such valuation risks uh, and what's going to affect the Ether price in the future. So if you're interested in participating in Ether sale, I hope that will help you with your decision making. Let's get started. I wanted to ask you something which I've actually never asked you, even though you know I've known you for for a while now. Uh, which is, what? When did you get interested in Bitcoin, and what was your sort of involvement with Bitcoin before Ethereum? Um, so I've been aware of it for quite some time. I think I, I, I remember years back when I saw a story on Slashdot about it. So I mean, I don't know if that was two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, but anyway, I was. I've been aware of it for some time, and. Uh, when it got to 2011, I think I, I think actually mined some, but I, I've looked all around for the uh, backup of my home directory <laughs> at that point, but I, I haven't been able to find them. Um, then fast forward to 2013, and um, it obviously hit the news a bit more. Um, uh, especially mentioned was was Kreuzberg. I think it was a, an article in the Guardian. And it was it was basically pointing out. That, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was like a brick and it was it was room seventy seven. I guess. Yeah, it was. Yeah, uh, the first brick and mortar place to take it, and um, yeah, I, I heard it. You know, I heard about the Silk Road as well, and I sort of thought it might be worth looking into. And I got in contact with Amir Taki through Amir. I met a couple of other people, and eventually through them, I met Vitalik. Uh, what was it about the Ethereum project that um, sort of captivated you so much? At the time, I was working on less motivating projects. Let's say um, I, I had uh, I was working in um, in the law um, um, software law firm uh, uh, software for law firms and having to work with technologies. Um, that were um, difficult and morale-reducing, morale-really. <laughs> yeah, um, so when uh, I saw Vitalik's white paper, it was, you know, as a software engineer, it was a breath of fresh air. It was something I could uh, really sort of uh, get my teeth into, you know, something that was pure and nice. And uh, and, and that's basically why I took it on in, in December. It was, it was effectively meant to be a nice little project over Christmas. Um, I was uh, there was obviously some some aspect of the of, of the uh, of wanting to see maybe you know maybe this could be something uh, more interesting than than just learning Bitcoin you know this this has got a bit more purity to it it's been a bit better designed from the ground up and it does a bit more but I was also kind of the, the scientist in me wanted to see if it could really you know how fast it would be how whether it would work really uh, yeah I was uh, I would say a healthy dose of cynicism really brought me into the project and made me want to try it out. And then I take it you were, uh, uh, you found your kind of questions to have positive answers. Um, yeah, to some degree. I mean, I think we're still working out a lot of the details, um, but I think to some degree I've brought to the project um, some of the fine tuning, some of the um, uh, the alterations that the protocol kind of needed in order to become uh, really more than more than what it is. Basically, I, you know, I would hope that my contributions have helped refine it into something that uh, will make it uh, down the line um, a bit easier for people to utilize and therefore a bit more, um, have a bit more promise in terms of bringing more applications onto it. Let's kind of um, explain what Ethereum is. Can you uh, give us a definition or so Ethereum, uh, first and foremost, is a platform. Most applications, if not all, that can be written on, eth- on the Ethereum platform can be written on other platforms as well. They can be implemented on other platforms. In the same way that Bitcoin can be implemented without having to have the blockchain and the decentralized network. The notion of just being able to have a ledger that sits on a server and that people can interact with is, is really easy. No problem there. The problem 
uh, the, the, uh, let's say the advancement that Bitcoin brings is the fact that it's decentralized. Mm-hmm. And thus when someone, when some large organization, government, or big corporation, when they want to say, uh, hold on, you, you know, running that server, I don't want you to run that server anymore. Or, you know, this is, this is illegal. You're, you're serving, you know, you're, you're arbitrating value transfer. That's illegal. Um, when they come along, they, they, with a normal server, with a traditional way of doing it, they can, of course, um, they have power over it. Uh, with Bitcoin, they have no power over it. And that's the key advancement Bitcoin brings. And so coming to Ethereum, what it effectively does, is it says, well, money is one sort of thing that you can put on a server and that we can now decentralize. Well, let's make a platform for decentralizing absolutely any software, any service that we want. We can then decentralize, make it work um, based on the trust through cryptography, not trust because it's you know, an authority. Uh, what Bitcoin brings to the table and what Ethereum sort of, sort of trumps is the notion that um, you don't need to be a server to have that position of trust. Everybody, all of the peers in the peer group um, can collaborate and form the trust among themselves. It's sort of like, um, uh, you know, this notion of order through chaos rather than order through uh, explicit design from some some you know godlike figure, and uh, so the platform for Ethereum is uh, is a platform that will allow you to make decentralized applications of the variety um, that we might currently think of as social contracts. So whereas money, cash, um, the clearinghouse, the notion of a clearinghouse is a social contract, and um, Ethereum allows you to introduce your own social contracts and allow other people to interact with each other through those social contracts. Can you define a social contract? A social contract is an agreement made um, voluntarily by a number of people who take part in a society. Now, it doesn't need to be a geographically limited society. It could be anywhere in the world. But the notion of a, of a social contract is simply one that um, is about the fact that people want to um, play by the same rules and, ex- and therefore be able to expect that everybody else is playing by those rules. I think the, the sort of uh, the idea of decentralizing, you know, a variety of applications, you know, it's, I think it's very clear. People can understand that. It makes total sense to me. Like, for example, something like Dropbox, you know, which is like an often used example. You know, it makes sense to me that like you can decentralize that. And, you know, that's really interesting. Um, but it's kind of what I find a bit strange and not necessarily so intuitive is why that idea of a contract is so central to make this possible. Even the notion of um, a social contract is new in the world of uh, technology. Um, it's no surprise, it should be no surprise to us. Bitcoin really introduced us, uh, and, uh, well, you know, those of us who are technologically savvy, um, it introduced to, um, to the notion of a, of a basic social contract. I can go to uh, an academic department, you know, one one that uh, you know are up to date with the latest um, advancements in computer science, and they won't understand the implications of the blockchain, of Bitcoin, of Ethereum, of all the other um, um, uh, projects out there trying to um, trying to do this. Why not? It's it's because it's it's yet to be absorbed, it's yet to be fully understood, and it's. Um, it's still very much in its infancy regarding what the ramifications and repercussions are for society. It's almost like we've solved the problem, um, but we're not we're not entirely sure what the problem that we've solved. But we know it. We know we've solved it. You know, we know we've got somewhere. We know we've reached new ground, new territory. Because, um, well, <laughs> the fact that Bitcoin is causing is starting to cause. I mean, I don't think it's um, it's really got there yet, but it's starting to cause such a um, a sort of ground shift and um, a, a, a fuss in the establishment is is one reason, but um, uh, there are others. That when you start sort of getting what the idea of this notion of an autonomous contract or an autonomous agent is, uh, when you start sort of thinking about, hold on, well, if this is possible, maybe all of this other stuff is possible too. Um, when you when you when that door starts opening, you start to realise, oh yeah, actually, this is this is actually something quite new something that we, we weren't able to do before. Um, if you sort of look ahead, I don't know, five years or something mm. like that, and 
like to speculate what those ramifications could be and what the world could look like at that point if sort of Ethereum lives up to its promise? What would you say? Well, firstly, I don't, I don't really know, um, but I will, I will make what predictions I can. There are many instances where people would like to collaborate with each other, and in some cases do. And, um, for instance, in, in Italy, uh, in the north of Italy, it's actually quite, quite common for in a village, a group of people who all trust each other to get together and to put in a large order to a farm, um, say an olive farm, uh, and they'll get, I don't know, enough olive oil to last, you know, each of the maybe 20 families, six months. In the UK, you know, this just isn't possible. People, uh, there's a breakdown of community. There's people often don't you know, properly know their neighbours. It's not like in an Italian village where you know everyone knows each other. So we don't have this level of trust. We can't we can't sort of hand someone money and to, to do this for us and, and expect that they will, you know, sincerely and faithfully sort of return us the olive oil, our share of the olive oil. And so we don't we, we have to sort of put our faith in supermarkets and, and, and centralized entities that, that have you know great um, that have their shareholders basically and so they, they they have to make profit for their shareholders and so you don't get these cooperatives forming and that's a shame because there's nothing intrinsically different about the people in the UK to the people in these Italian villages so what we would like is a system so that people can um, trust each other you know, people can, can gather trust or ideally interact and form agreements without the necessity to trust each other and can put together these uh, cooperatives, make systems and mechanisms of cooperation um, that don't require um, a centralised authority telling people what to do. You should pay this now, you should collect it now, you should go there. Ideally, that will just sort of form through, um, through the software through something that um, everybody can, can know and see and understand. And that is what Ethereum, but that is what Ethereum and, and smart contracts and um, the, the notion of a social operating system, that's what it's going to start bringing to society. So when you say, well, what are the, um, what are the sort of applications? Um, then it becomes a bit harder because... Whereas the notion of clubbing together to buy some olive oil is a relatively sort of, uh, you know, blunt instrument of a social contract. You know, people can understand it. It's, you know, but we will, get, <clears throat> we will get much more nuanced ways of cooperating and, um, and agreeing with each other. And that's when it really starts to get interesting. So what might those be? Um, so uh, the notion of an escrow is quite an interesting one. So an automated escrow. <laughs> But probably the, the only thing that's most interesting to me is uh, insurance. So insurance companies at the moment basically act as a massive fat middleman. <laughs> they collect um, a lot of premiums off a lot of people and they make sure that their risk is uh, their risk portfolio is diversified. And then when any one thing goes wrong, they can uh, pay out and still make a nice tidy profit. Now, there are lots of people um, who like a nice gamble. But the, the point is that you've got these two sides of the equation. You've got people who want certainty and people who like to gamble. Um, well, one of the things that we can start to imagine is, well, why not just combine the two? Um, have a, uh, an insurance contract on Ethereum that allows you to be paid out um, a large amount of money if an earthquake happens in your area and have other people that want to bet in the opposite direction and want to um, win a maybe a relatively small amount of money as long as the earthquake doesn't happen uh, in the next day. And so you end up with a decentralized, insurance autonomous insurance. It seems like that would be a, such a complicated system to set up. Like, how do you have a price finding there and... Uh, and, and there, there's a lot of expertise there that insurance company has. And, and that it seems like, it seems to me that would be quite a challenge to uh, accomplish that in a, with a contracts on a blockchain. Firstly, there will, there will be um, some 
degree of expertise, like um, you know, how much is, what is the risk? Um, but, you know, that can largely be left to market principles to work out. If um, more people are willing to bet on uh, for this price, then you know, the risk is probably yeah. um, um, overestimated. Um, if fewer, then the risk is probably underestimated. And, and there will be ways of, of encoding, of um, effectively, you know, selling or determining the risk through market mechanisms. So I don't, I think most of what an insurance company brings is firstly uh, it, certainty. Mm-hmm. But again, that could be done. You know, there's nothing intrinsic about yeah. uh, about that. And um, and they bring, you know, some degree of, of reliability. Um, and other than that, they're just a massive computer. They employ a lot of people to push a lot of paper, a lot of pens, yeah. a lot of paper going around the desks. Now, yes, you're right. Um, coding it up would be... Um, you know, probably, probably non-trivial. Um, I mean, I, I've written a fair amount of software. I suspect it would actually just take one or two devs, not very long to do it. The key point is that once it's written, it's written and that's it. It's done. And people, um, people utilize it indefinitely. Uh, whereas an insurance company, they have to keep paying the people who work there to push the pens, papers around the desks, yeah. fly people around the world. I guess another function would be the the verification of the claims, but I guess that's also something where you could have arbitrator a marketplace of arbitrators too. Ah, well, that, that, that's um, the verification of the claims doesn't need to be at all. Um, so, if it's simply an earthquake happened in my area, I want I want my payout. Well, they can prove that they deserve a payout because they that they're on the contract as having paid. You so mean if there is some uh, data feed that says there was an earthquake? Right? So then you say, right, well, how do you prove that, that you know, that, that an earthquake did indeed happen there? And of course, yeah, yeah then, then you need... So there are a couple of ways of doing that. One is a, a basket of trusted data feeds. Yeah. So then you don't have to trust any one data feed. That, you know, you just take, take the median of, of a bunch of them. They all have sort of very sort of semi-trusted pseudo-trust. And uh, the second way of doing it is, is um, a sh- what was called a shelling mechanism whereby um, if enough people, um, so this is effectively decentralized data collection, and it, it relies on the notion that enough people uh, will be telling the truth such that, and that when people lie, they lie in a more random way. And so you're able to, uh, through using averaging techniques, find the truth. Um, of course, you'd still have like, let's say my house gets robbed or something, then, you know, you'd uh, have to go to the police, they get a police report. Uh, you know, I don't think the police will have like a trusted API that speaks to the blockchain, but maybe in the future at some point. That's quite possible. I mean, the German government has recently start, uh, started releasing um, private, uh, private key keychains. So you can now... Um, oh, for the, the government ID. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, sure, at some point in the future, perhaps if there's a society built on top of that, then you could have... So all, like all it actually has to be is the police have their um, have a private um, ID that they can sign a statement with, a digital statement. Let's touch on one more thing, which I think is, is extremely interesting. When you talk sort of about the, the long-term or medium-term... Um, potential of, of platforms like Ethereum, which is a voting systems, mm-hmm. and then the idea, I guess, also of having a, a DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. Can you explain a bit uh, how those work? Whatever is possible with Ethereum is possible today, as long as you give up the notion of it being decentralized and autonomous. So there's a notion of having an organization. Now, the organization has a bunch of people that in some way cooperate for the greater good of the organization, whatever, doing whatever it does. Um, if it's an NGO, then it's presumably helping people. If it's, a, if it's an enterprise, then it's presumably making money for its owners. Now, as soon as you make it decentralized and autonomous, what you're basically doing is saying, we won't have any person... Um, running it, we won't have we won't have a hierarchical structure. We won't have someone in charge. Uh, we won't have the chain of control, uh, the chain of command. Rather, we will say that the organisation should exist purely based on a set of rules of interaction, um, which is to say, when people join the organisation, they can be certain about 
how they will have to interact with other people, what changes will be made, how they will be made. Um, basically, it's a bit like you take the CEO or you take the sort of manager and you, you can read their mind. You know everything about well, how they're going to decide something, who they're going to listen to, what they're thinking in terms of what they really want, how they're going to approach problems, their strategy. Um, that's basically what the blockchain allows you to do. So you can think of this as a contract or an interconnected set of contracts because it's rule-oriented. Uh, it seems to me that this may work well in sort of a, a clear-cut world where it's clear what rules you need, but it seems like you know in the real world there's a lot of ambiguity. Do you think that's a, a problem for DAOs? Or it... so, um, in, so in the real world, there is um, ambiguity in terms of um, what, what it is that we mean. Natural language is necessarily a bit ambiguous. And we are imperfect beings. We don't always interpret the rules as they were meant to be interpreted. When you're in a computer system, when you're in a mathematically formalized system, you can that just goes out of the window. It's perfect. It has to be perfect. It has to be deterministic. It has to be exactly perfectly specified. So in the real world, we have, um, through necessity, um, things like reasonable and and in the spirit we don't have that in the, we can't take that into the well we can take it into the computer world with us but there's no need it's forced on us in the real world it doesn't it doesn't it's not forced on us forced onto us in the computer world and therefore we can um, up front actually specify the rules and specify them in a perfectly deterministic and perfectly um, understandable way that seems to me uh, sort of argue the problem way in a strange way. I mean, it seems ambiguity is often, uh, it just seems like ambiguity is part of our life. You, you won't be able to write contracts that, um, I mean, perhaps the contracts themselves can be unambiguous, but it seems like that then they may just conflict with an ambiguous world. Um, so within a computer system, a, um, the lowest level of representation is the binary digit. It can be either one or zero. Sure. I, I know a, a computer program will be like non-ambiguous. There won't be ambiguity in an Ethereum contract. <laughs> but my point is that if you talk about uh, replacing a company with, with unambiguous code, it seems like a lot of the things a CEO does every time, every day is deal with ambiguity uh, in ambiguous situations. And it just seems like to replace uh, a CEO's role with unambiguous, sort of clear-cut deterministic code, it, that just seems uh, impossible to me. So a CEO's um, um, job is to make unambiguous, is to make decisions. Yeah. Um, now, there is, being the real world, of course, I think probably what you're getting at is that there is imperfect information for him to make, or her, to make such decisions. But nonetheless, when he makes decisions, he makes unambiguous decisions, or at least if he's a good CEO, he makes unambiguous decisions. Uh, yeah, let's do that maybe. You know, that, that's, a, that's an ambiguous decision. That's, that's not a good decision. A CEO will say, right, this is the strategy. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do the other thing. Um, and specify that in, in a very unambiguous way. Now, in the real world, there is there is a lack of certain information a lot of the times, and translated into Ethereum, there will be there will you know you can't have more information than is in the real world. Um, but I suppose the point is that that will be encoded in such a way that when the Ethereum contract or DAO deals with it it will know what the limits of that information are. So it will know the, I don't know, percentage error margins on what this is coming in. Um, yes, there will be gray areas, but there'll be very well-defined gray areas. You know, if, if, the, if the risk is high that this is not the case, then it will be specified that the risk is high and not, that it's not the case. And the DAO will be able to, will be programmed in order to understand what that risk is, understand the uh, the likelihood and the probabilities and the uncertainties involved, and still deterministically and perfectly make a decision. 
concerning it that is unambiguous. So let me try to run through uh, sort of an example of how what that could look like because I think can, people can relate to and uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, right? But so uh, a company that sort of talked about a lot in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space is Kickstarter because I guess a lot of people are interested in how you can replicate those uh, in, a, in a decentralized way. So if you had like a, a Kickstarter uh, DAO, it would, you know, somehow... Uh, have rules on how to submit the project to the platform. Perhaps there would be some sort of uh, mechanism by which uh, people are asked to, you know, approve projects. Maybe there would be people who vote on it with their reputation to say, is this a, plaf- a project we want to have on the platform? Then it would, uh, it would have defined rules on how people can fund the projects uh, and what they would be given some token or some reward that they can later claim. Uh, maybe you would have some sort of reputation system that afterwards people can vote on whether the people who created the projects were trustworthy so that in the future, if they have another one, you can look at the history. Um, maybe there would be some escrow function somewhere um, so that you'd have the structure where essentially you can sort of do what Kickstarter does, which is people submit projects, you know, get them funded and then they give back um, a reward or something to the, the fu- uh, participants without having that centralized organization that, you know, t- says which projects are okay in the platform and takes 5%. Yes. So that's that about... Uh, uh, so I think the the most important thing is the is the final uh, it was the final point there that um, you don't need the central organisation to tell you what you can do right. and to take money for for, for, for taking that yeah for doing that and um, that's really what it all comes down to. Of course, you still have, for example, Kickstarter, all the work they do, and the U user interface, uh, website, etc. Again, uh, that only needs to be done once. So it's not clear why they should get five percent of everything. So let's talk a little bit about um, the sort of components of Ethereum. Uh, Maybe we don't have to go into a lot of detail here, but uh, I know there are a lot of different uh, things that have to be in place for uh, people to be able to build applications on this and for Ethereum to work. Mm. Um, Can you go into this a little bit? And I know perhaps at the core there will be an uh, Ether browser now. Yeah, I don't know so, if that's a good place to start, or you wanna, or maybe there will also be an app store. No, indeed, um, um, there'll be. Um, so Ethereum can be um, described as one component, one of three components to um, what uh, you know what what people have been calling um, the post Snowden web or Web three point zero. Um, but this is basically a notion of of having a decentralized web. So with a new web, there'll be a new web browser. And um, this web browser would be, you know, you can think of it as a wallet, but a wallet with a with a, an HTML window. Or you can think of it as a browser, uh, but a browser that has Ethereum running in its back end. Now, in addition to Ethereum, there'll be two other technologies. One would be um, effective to, to allow individuals to communicate with each other but they don't need to uh, without any necessity for agreement so there's no notion that you know you have to remember what the other person said or um, that everybody needs to be able to form consensus on what you two are saying to each other it's just a way for for you to do communications like kind of like the internet the internet is to communications what ethereum is to agreements the other third technology is something that allows people to publish and distribute information, um, generally larger bits of information, but also things like pay- templates for web pages. The, the notion is that the um, this information is stuff that doesn't change over multiple days or weeks. So that's uh, like web hosting, is that correct? Kind of like web hosting, but probably better thinking of it in terms of BitTorrent, so kind of like um, hosting a torrent file. So if you have a decentralized internet, um, uh, then where will websites be hosted? Can you host a website in a decentralized way? Of course. I mean, a BitTorrent is is, is a decentralized um, piece of information that can be downloaded from the internet. There's no reason why the information can't be an HTML file with a bit of JavaScript and images. 
And would that be uh, performance-wise competitive with centralized web hosting? BitTorrent probably wouldn't be, but we're looking into methods of adapting the basic um, idea of, of that um, with optimizations that would allow it to be competitive. But so when you talk about BitTorrent web hosting, essentially uh, I would try to load a website, I would be connecting to lots of uh, peers that then would send me pieces of the website and I would assemble it in my browser. Now, is that that's right? Or um, as a, as like a that? basic idea, yes. I, of course, the way that we're envisioning, visit, uh, envisioning it is that you would already be connected to the, to the peers. Yeah. You would already likely have the peers that are going to give you the websites that you want. And therefore, it's actually reasonable. You may even have already got the websites because they're looking at them, and it's they've decided that you know you're a good point, a good idea to it'd be a good idea to cache that one that yeah, for you. Yeah. So it might be that you go to your website and the template's already there. So you go to your news site, and of course you've already got most of the uh, the template loaded, all the images and that sort of stuff. And you're just waiting for the content. And of course, sure. then the content is... I guess that's a bit like Amazon, you know, when they preload a page in a JavaScript or something. You know? Yeah. So yeah, it seems like we, we have this sort of gigantic project ahead of us, no? <laughs> of, of like an endless amount of, uh, on the one hand, infrastructure components. So yeah, there's the app store, browser, also things that will be used by a lot of uh, applications such as uh, identity systems, no reputation, uh, arbitration, I think would be really important. Although if there's no ambiguity, then maybe not. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think you're right. I think there'll be a sufficient amount of ambiguity that we will need. Um, so how is that all going to be developed? Like what, what parts of this will be developed by sort of the official Ethereum team? What parts of it will be developed by uh, independent developers, independent teams? Yeah, that's a good question. We're, um, so the, the official development team or dev as we're, uh, as we're called. Um, I suppose it's like it's Ethereum, but it's also Web3. So it's also the other technologies as well and the browsers. Dev will first and foremost develop the Ethereum protocol, the 1.0 protocol, as specified in the white paper and the yellow paper. That's its, that's its primary purpose. After that, it will start developing the tools, so the programming tools, the, uh, the development environment, um, the browser. And then after that, it will, if it's got enough money, it will, um, it will dedicate its resources to developing the other two Web3 technologies. So this idea of a peer-to-peer -peer message, low-level, you know, not, not something like email, but low-level messaging system, and the, um, the content distribution system. Now, of course, you're right to bring up the, uh, the reputation system and so on. Now, we are hoping that we'll be able to address those as well. Um, but if not, um, we've had you know real great interest from the community in terms of trying to understand. Maybe they can do it. Maybe they just want to sort of have a play around with it. But I think as as time goes on, we'll we'll draw ever greater and sort of greater crowds wanting to play around with decentralized applications. And these are these are really the sort of building blocks. The great the great sort of there's a lot of I don't know. There's you know there's a lot of potential to really explore this un un uncharted area by building these things. So I, I think that um, even if we don't do that, there'll be plenty of interest by others who, who want to. Will people be able to uh, profit from building applications? You know, will you be able, for example, to build, uh, say, like, I'm going to do a startup now, uh, and build a reputation system and then I hope in the future if it gets adopted and widely used, you know, I will uh, make profit from that. Is, is that sort of thing possible or...? Old models of content creation are, um, are going to become increasingly outdated. So but this is not content creation, right? Well, I mean, you could, you could argue that, um, that the... the the notion of a reputation system, adapt software as content, but the, the you know creation of of information software, based yeah, stuff. Sure, but then that's a different question to saying can you make money from it? Uh, personally, I think yes, you can. I think there will be an increasing amount of money made from selling one's expertise in certain areas, creating consulting potential. So. If in this case, suppose you do create the reputation system and it's a really good reputation system, it's like, you know, it gives you the ability to know that someone is, that this identity is 
you know, trustworthy, a real person, you know, without giving away any of their, necess- you know, necessarily giving away any of their privacy, that would be great. Um, and if they could come along with that, I suspect it probably would get adopted. And then, of course, you get pe- other people wanting to build on this infrastructure. And they say, right, well, wouldn't it be great if we could, you know, get this person to um, instruct us so they, they hire them. Or maybe the person, you know, writes a book on how they did it and how why it works and, and maybe in, uh, is instructive in terms of um, uh, getting people to understand it and trust it and uh, and be able to use it better. Sure. So, so I, I guess a bit like Red Hat and Linux. No? Exactly. But I think the interesting example there you know, if, is if you look at the enormous impact Linux has had, you know, like how you know, enormously widely it's used. And then you look at Red Hat, which is, you know, maybe a successful company and profitable, etc. Yeah. Sure it is, right? But compare that to Apple or Google or something like that, then Red Hat is, uh, is tiny, you know? So, I mean, I think this kind of... Um, the thing you're talking about, of course, that makes sense, right? Like, so you, you develop some value piece of software, help people implement it, you know, and I'm sure you can get paid, you know, well for that. But uh, it seems like the scope is totally different. Um, it does, it, there's, there's no, um, you know, there's just, you will never have the, the kind of uh, magnitude of a company and uh, maybe that thing just won't be possible. I don't know, right? It may well be that this is one of the things that comes from decentralization. Um, Microsoft got as big as it as it got because it's a it's a mammoth centralized entity, um, and that, in my opinion, was not was not a good thing for the uh, information technology industry as a whole. Um, it stifled innovation to a large degree for a long time, and. I mean, if we look at, just to take that example, uh, OS2, which is, uh, you know, was a a much better uh, implementation in many respects than what it was up against at the time. And yet, uh, Microsoft, through um, uh, the ability to leverage its its industry weight um, using anti-competitive tactics, um, uh, basically beat it out of the market. Now... And it's not just some random startup we're talking about. It's IBM who are peddling OS too. Massive, massive company. So centralization as a whole, yeah, sure. We might not, uh, when we decentralize things, we may not see centralized entities um, making quite as much money as they, uh, you know, as Microsoft and Apple have done. But I wouldn't say that's necessarily a bad thing. And I certainly uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't say never either. I think it's, uh, we will see a lot more of the Red Hat model and a lot more of the, the Mozilla model, for sure. Um, but you never know. There may yet be some more Microsofts and Apples. Can you talk a little bit about Ethereum as as um, an organization, about this, the state of the development? How many people, for example, let's, let's start with that. How many people are working sort of paid full-time on Ethereum today? Uh, I believe the figure is around 15 to 20 I guess the fundraising is still going on, so you don't know how much money there will be. But what, where do you expect that to be I don't know, in a, six months from now? Um, I this well, you're exactly, you're exactly right in that the fundraising is going on, so we just don't know. But um, if the fundraising doesn't make more than uh, eight to ten million, then dollars, then it's very likely that um, Ethereum will become a um, uh, a very, very slim organization indeed. Uh, slimmer and, than today. Or... Uh, considerably, yes. And there will be, basically all of that money will go to two separate organizations. Um, the CCRG, um, a research group in, yeah. uh, in cryptocurrency, and DEV, which is to say a organization directed by uh, myself, Vitalik, and Jeff, um, a, the Go developer. And it will be up to us three to uh, create basically what I've just told you, the Web3 song. Um, so along with a bunch of other developers, and I would hope in six months' time that we'll have, you know, we'll have scaled to maybe 15 or 20 full-time developers, a couple of administrators, um, a couple of nice hubs, and one or two people involved in education and communication. Well, Gavin, thanks so much. Uh, I hope uh, you know people will check out Ethereum, and I hope we will see a lot of uh, really exciting things uh, coming out of the project. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to talk.
So I hope that gave you guys a bit of a, an impression of what Ethereum is, what the platform's goals are, and uh, where we are kind of in the stage of the development. A lot of people are uh, extremely excited about Ethereum. They think there's huge potential, perhaps even as big as Bitcoin itself. I don't know if that's true, but I'm also excited about the platform and I'm extremely excited to see where Ethereum goes in the future. I want to talk about something that many people have probably heard about, and it's it's one of the most important kind of milestones in uh, the development of Ethereum, and that's the Ether sale. Um, now, the Ether sale has been going on for um, about two weeks, uh, almost two weeks, and it's going to go on for another 29 days. And uh, I want to talk a little bit about how to think about the sale and if, if you're thinking of purchasing some Ether, so you'll have some kind of guidelines of understanding whether this is a good idea or not and what the risks are and what the potential rewards are. The first thing I want to touch on before I kind of dive into the specifics is something really funny. So if you go on the Ethereum platform uh, website, so ethereum.org, and you click on buy Ether, they have this long... Uh, terms and conditions thing and when you read through it they talk about you know you have to declare that you're allowed legally to buy products of a swiss origin it's like what why is that product of a swiss origin so i kind of i want to talk briefly about you know, why they do this and uh, the, the legal side of this now there have been uh, quite a few projects in the bitcoin community that have done uh, things they've called ipos so they've sold these kind of securities or shares or at least they, they that's what they called it um you know on bitcoin talk forums or, or on their websites and different campaigns and it's quite important to realize that most of this is illegal um the selling security, selling shares is, is a very, very regulated area. And one thing that you're not allowed to do in general is to sell shares or to offer shares to the general public. So I cannot just, we cannot just go on our website and say, hey, uh, here's this Bitcoin address. Anybody who wants uh, can buy a percent of Bitcoin shares and, you know, you're going to get like X percent over future profits. So that that's illegal. You can't do that. You can only do that, you know, if you can only sell to accredited investors. It's, all, it's, a, it's a complicated area. But Ethereum is doing something a bit like that. But they can't call it selling shares because that's illegal. So what they've done is they've created a, a legal entity in Switzerland in the canton of Zug. And they found some way with the local authorities there to conduct this ether sale in a way that's not illegal. And the way they've done that is by saying that you are not buying securities, you're not buying shares of the Ethereum project of the company, but you're buying uh, a product. You're actually pre-ordering a product, and the product in this case is Ether, which is the currency that's going to be used on the Ethereum platform. Now, uh, kind of economically, this doesn't really work like buying a product. It's not a typical product pre-order. It's actually much more like a share. Uh, but I, I, I want to sort of, I wanted to get this out of the way. So if if you see people, especially the Ethereum team, you know, they always talk about, hey, this is a product. Now they have to legally have to do that because otherwise they would be um, violating the laws. But as an investor, it's important to understand the kind of economics dynamics that are going on here. And they're much more like a share. So let's talk about what Ether is going to be used for. So in the future, there's going to be this Ethereum platform. And this Ethereum platform will be used to run decentralized applications to execute these contracts, have them executed by uh, decentralized networks of computers, of miners. Now, if I'm going to put in a contract there and it's going to be executed by all these miners, then I have to pay for that. Of course, that makes total sense because if I didn't, then I could just spam the networks, give it all kinds of pointless contracts and people will get angry and you know you'd have like useless computations running and of course you also need to have an incentive you have an, you need to have an incentive for miners to actually uh, provide their hardware their bandwidth etc and um, essentially maintain the ethereum network we also have a similar security thing that you need to have a certain mining power otherwise it may not be as secure so ether is going to be used for me 
as somebody who writes a contract, for example, to pay for it to be executed by the network. Now, the way this kind of works is that if Ethereum is going to be really successful in the future, we assume that there will be a lot of demand for people to run uh, applications, contracts on the Ethereum platform. If that's going to happen, then there will be a lot of demand for Ether because you need Ether to run your application, execute your contract. So the, the kind of basic economic dynamics that are going on with the Ether sale is that if you buy some Ether now, and if Ethereum is going to be really successful in the future, you will be able to sell it at a higher price, hopefully at least, um, to people who want to run these applications. They need them, right? So you can think of that uh, perhaps the demand for running these applications is just going to explode and you know, Ether is going to become much, much more uh, valuable because so many people want it. That also, of course, means that computations will become cheaper uh, per Ether in the future. So is this a good idea? Should you buy some Ether? I think the uh, really important thing to understand is the kind of dynamics we have going on here in terms of what... Um, what, how many people are investing in the project and what ownership are you going to have of the project? Essentially what happens is it, the more people buy Ether, uh, currently uh, about 12,000 Bitcoins worth of Ether has, have been bought, but you know this could increase. So the more people, the more Bitcoins people put into uh, this project, then the more Ether are going to be created. Of course, in the future, right, if you think five years down the line, that means that if there's a some amount of demand for Ether, if twice as many ethers have been, Ether has been created, that means uh, the price of Ether is going to be half as much. So we have a, a basic dynamic that more people investing in Ethereum, more people buying Ether, dilutes your shares as somebody who also wants to buy Ether. So in that sense, um, you could say that um, it, ideally, perhaps, assuming Ethereum is still going to be built and successful, you would want to be the only one buying Ether. Of course, that's not the case, right? There's been uh, hundreds or thousands of people buying Ether, but you have this kind of dynamic that the more people invest, this, the smaller the share of the total supply of Ether that you own. Um, of course, there's another dynamic, uh, which you could say uh, perhaps it's more likely that Ethereum is going to be successful if they have more money, right? So if they raise no money whatsoever, assuming that, uh, and they, you know they wouldn't be able to finish the code, then perhaps uh, that would be terrible. So we want a certain minimum level of investment, and perhaps the more they have, the better they can make the platform, etc. Now, this may be going on to some extent. Uh, it is certainly going on to some extent. You know, I know they will do things with it the more ether they have. But I, I think it's actually quite limited in my personal view. Um, I suspect that kind of regardless of how much more ether they're going to sell, the current level of uh, funding they've gotten is enough for them to develop their platform. And, and then it's just going to kind of be up to the competition, how well it works, etc., how successful it is. Um, so, so that, that kind of dynamic of, you know, you wanting to have more investment. So the platform is even better. I don't think it's so strong here. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's actually a really good idea to buy at the end, right? To buy after everybody's bought already or after most people have bought already. And so you have a, a good idea of what actually are you getting? Because if you bought some in the beginning, you had absolutely no idea whether you would now own 0.1% uh, or 10% or, or what, what percentage of Ether you would end up owning in the end. Now, uh, the interesting thing is that tomorrow, so that's Tuesday, August 5, the Ether price is changing. So right now, if you invest in Ether, 
you get 2000 Ether for one Bitcoin. But on Tuesday, this is changing and it's changing uh, to 1970 Ether. So essentially the price of Ether is increasing and you get less for your Bitcoin. Now, the consequence of that, of course, is that most people who want to buy Ether will do so before that date. So if you buy on that date or maybe the day after, uh, that's um, you will have a lot of information then. You will basically have a really good idea of how many people are investing in the platform and you have a good idea of what percentage of Ether you will own and even down the line what you will own. Now let's talk a little bit about the sort of monetary dynamics that are going on with Ethereum. If you think of Bitcoin, a really crucial thing that has driven the value of Bitcoin has been that idea or has been that Bitcoin is limited, right? There will never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. So if you think of it, oh, but let's say the world adopts Bitcoin, let's becomes the world's reserve currency, then those 21 million Bitcoin have to uh, be enough to satisfy this huge amount of economic transactions, of reserves, of wealth held in Bitcoins. So, so the only way for that to happen is if one Bitcoin becomes really, really valuable. So I think this has driven a lot of the development in Bitcoin. A lot of people gotten into it because of that, because they understand that. Um, and uh, of course, also currently the value of Bitcoin, right? We, we had something like seven, eight billion dollars. Um, you know, that's really driven by that. It's really driven by the expectation of the future value. Now, with Ethereum, we have a similar but somewhat different dynamic. So, uh, if a certain number of Bitcoin are invested, so let's just say uh, it stays at the current rate, which is uh, 12,000 Bitcoins. That means that 24, 000, uh, 24 million Ether will be issued or will be given to the people uh, buying Ether, people investing here. Now, in addition to those 24 million, uh, what they will also do is they will create uh, 20% more of that. So that's, you know, two times 2.4 million Ether. And those will be split. So 2.4 million will go to the founders and uh, 2.4 million will go to a foundation. Now, the founders, of course, these are people like Vitalik, Gavin, who've been working on this for months, you know, who've been kind of full-time diving into this for, I guess, up to about about nine months or something like that in the case of Vitalik. So those, you know, they haven't gotten paid for the most part. So, so they will uh, get some of that ether uh, basically for the pay for their work and I think also to pay for their work going forward and give them sort of an incentive in the project. Another 10%, so another uh, 2.4 million, assuming it stays at this current uh, level, will go into a foundations and that foundation will be used to pay developers and, and other staff in, in the future. So essentially that means uh, that you are slightly diluted, right? Slightly more ether are actually created than are being purchased but it's not crazy right it's a 20 percent more and the other thing that happens afterwards is that every year 26 percent of that amount that's purchased by investors uh, during the fundraising period are mined so let's say it stays at 24 million that means that at 26 percent every year are mined so that's 6.2 2 million ether. Now that's going to be the case forever, right? So every single year, 6.24 million are mined. So of course, that means that your share of the total amount of ether is going to go down every year. And, uh, you know, in the end, uh, at least a thousand years from now, it's going to be pretty close to zero. Um, but in, in the sort of near term, it's going to be uh, higher. Um, this is, if we compare this with Bitcoin, we have a slightly different dynamic, right? With Bitcoin, we have a decreasing inflation rate. So we had, you know, 50 Bitcoins per block in the beginning, then 25, it's going to go to 12.5, 6.25, etc. Now, with Ether, it's constant, right? It's always 6.24 million per year. I don't know what that translates to per block. I don't know if that's been figured out. But, um, so it's not as deflationary as Bitcoin, 
But nevertheless, right, uh, 10 years down the line, a lot of Ether will have been issued, and it's still 6.24 million that are mined that year. Now, of course, that's a much smaller percentage of the total amount of Ether that's been issued than uh, next year, right? So in the first year of operation, essentially the inflation rate is going to be about 25%. And that's going to decrease every year until it goes also tends towards uh, zero. So uh, the kind of point I want to um, get to here is that uh, Ether is sort of deflationary, right? So, I mean, it has an inflation rate, but it decreases. It doesn't do so as rapidly as Bitcoin. And uh, so it's it's perhaps not as attractive from that perspective uh, as Bitcoin is. But uh, I think it's st- it still has that dynamic that if a lot of people are starting to use Ether, it's not like the Ether supply is going to balloon. No, it's independent of how many people are using um, Ethereum. So you do have that dynamic that if Ethereum is successful, we will see a dramatic price increase, at least hopefully. Um, there are a few more things I want to briefly touch on. Uh, first of all, I, I I think it's quite similar to purchasing Bitcoin in many ways because we have a similar dynamic, right? It, it could become a really big platform, could be super successful, which would increase the price. And one important difference, of course, is that Ethereum still hasn't been issued, right? There's no like, uh, there's no uh, working client. I mean, they they have a test net, they're testing it, but it hasn't been sort of tested in the real world when real money is at stake. This means less proven than Bitcoin, right? It could be flawed. Perhaps we will find some terrible thing in there that just can't be fixed. So in terms of a risk level, the risk is obviously higher than Bitcoin. And I would say it's much higher than Bitcoin. So that's something to keep in mind. Of course, at the same time, we could also say uh, the valuation is going to be very different, right? Today, uh, sort of the, the value of all the Bitcoins in circulation is about $8 billion. Um, now, I don't know how many, um, what kind of an investment level the Ethereum people will get, but it's going to be way, way, way less than that. Now, uh, does it make up, um, you know, is the kind of increased risk and the better price you get, is that a good deal? I don't know. I mean, you have to figure that out. But uh, at least fundamentally, that dynamic is there. What's also important to realize is that Ethereum is an open source project. So all the code is going to be public. It's going to be on GitHub. People can take it, can do whatever they want with it. Just like with Bitcoin, right? People have cloned Bitcoin. They've created Litecoin, Dogecoin, and all kinds of other things with it. Uh, The same thing uh, will happen with Ethereum, right? The same code will be there and you can make uh, other projects. I I know it's had actually has already happened, even though the life client's not out yet. Uh, there are people who basically want to uh, do Ethereum, but instead of um, the money being owned by the people who purchase Ether, the money is just going to be given to all the Bitcoin holders. So that's a risk. As, a, as an ether, as a, somebody buying Ether, of course, that's a real risk, right? So because it could be that the platform is developed, some people take it, maybe they're more successful with it, but then your Ether can't be used on that platform um, and, and they become totally worthless. So that's, that's a real risk um, and it's something to be aware of. I think there's one big factor that Ethereum has kind of going for it. And that's something called network effect. So a network effect is essentially the idea that the bigger something is, the more powerful it becomes uh, and the more efficient it becomes. Uh, Now, money is like that, right? The more people use money, the more useful it becomes. Now, that makes it really hard for somebody who just shows up new and starts something small to become big because the big... Um, the big currencies have an advantage already because of their size. Now, we have similar things in other areas, let's say uh, Facebook, right? So if you want to be connected to everybody, of course, it's much better if a lot of people are already on the platform. That makes it hard for somebody from scratch to start a new social network because nobody's on there, nobody wants to use it. It's not as attractive. Now, we may have something similar with, we may have something similar with uh, Ethereum, and we have something similar uh, with Bitcoin, right? So with Bitcoin, 
it, the more people use Bitcoin, the more attractive it is, the more useful it is. And with all other currencies, we generally don't have the size of community of applications, etc. Now, with Bitcoin, what we have seen is that even though lots of people have uh, cloned Bitcoin, have forked Bitcoin, have done sort of new Bitcoin variants, uh, overall, they haven't been super successful, right? Bitcoin is still, if you look on CoinMarketCap, you can kind of see what's the total value of Bitcoin, of, of, of you know, of all the cryptocurrencies, of the value of all, the total value of all the cryptocurrencies. And uh, I think the last I checked, it's about 93%. So it's, it's pretty high. So you could say that all those people copying Bitcoin, it hasn't probably not affected very much the Bitcoin price. With Ethereum, we could have a similar situation. We could have the situation that a lot of people developing applications on the Ethereum platform. And because of that, the Ethereum platform is attractive and valuable. And it has these network effects that it's much more possible to do a new application on there because service is already there. And that makes it harder to just clone it and, and create something new and compete with it. Now, I personally think that these network effects will be present with Ethereum. So that is something that will protect Ethereum, but of course, it's no guarantee. It could absolutely happen that in the end, uh, somebody just takes Ethereum and takes the work they've done, clones it, and, and maybe that's going to be more successful. Uh, I know uh, one proposal I'm actually, uh, uh, one project I'm, I find very, really interesting, sidechains, uh, which is essentially the idea that you allow this kind of innovation that Ethereum is trying to do, but using the same monetary basis, Bitcoin. Now, uh, I'm sure somebody will try Ethereum on a sidechain, and, and if that happened, it's possible that uh, the Ether wouldn't be used there and, and they would lose value. So, so it's, a, it's, a risk, uh, it's a risk to keep in mind. So I think that kind of uh, comes to the end of it. I guess what, one thing I should interject here, um, which is that um, because Ethereum is not live yet, you can actually buy Ethereum now. Essentially, you put in Bitcoins and you get a wallet or, or you get some file that once the Ethereum testnet, uh, once Ethereum, the, the real thing is live, you can kind of import it and then you get your Ethereum balance. So also means you won't be able to trade it, right? So if you buy some Ether now and you don't want it anymore, well, you're going to have to wait until the actual client is out until you're able to sell it. Um, so yeah, that's also kind of something to, to keep in mind. So I hope that uh, gave people a bit of a bit of ideas of how to think about this ether sale. Uh, my, my personal view is that it has a, a lot of potential, and of course, it has a lot of risks. So I, I think personally, I feel like it makes sense to take basically a small uh, portion of. But, you know, my Bitcoin holdings and put it into Ether. But I also think it, it would be very foolish to say, oh, uh, you know, this is better than Bitcoin, so let, let me sell all my Bitcoins and buy Ether. I think that that would be a, a not a very prudent idea and extremely risky. Um, so uh, I guess I should also add a disclaimer because, of course, uh, I don't want anybody to come to me and tell me, oh, I was wrong. Um, or blame me if something goes wrong and uh, that is please do your own research uh, really look into this look into Ethereum uh, think about whether this makes sense and then you know be prudent and, and uh, make your own judgment also one thing to really keep in mind and uh, you should put a kind of high priority on that is to uh, keep uh, like make sure to take all the necessary security precautions when you actually buy Ether, you know, if you choose to do so. Uh, because, of course, if you uh, lose the file or if it gets stolen or if you don't use good password for encryption or something like that, uh, it's possible that you'd lose them. And, of course, that, that would not be desirable. So it's, it's important to kind of do some research on that and be sure to uh, store them in a secure way. So I hope that was uh, interesting and helpful. So, you know, once again, uh, be careful, make your own judgments. Um, but uh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see where this is going. Of course, uh, all these things I've been talking about may not be so relevant for you. If the reason why uh, you want to buy Ether is just to support the project and support the work they're doing, um, I'm, I'm sure some of you will uh, 
will be driven by those motivations. And it's really important, I think, that this infrastructure gets built, you know, kind of regardless of uh, the financial prospects of um, the people purchasing Ether. So thanks so much for listening today. Um, we hope this was interesting for you. I hope you, uh, you learned a bit about Ethereum um, and about the uh, kind of Ether sale that's going on and about all the exciting things that uh, are waiting us down the line with Ethereum and with other projects that are trying to take that amazing innovation that was accomplished with Bitcoin and with achieving a decentralized consensus and that are applying to a much broader range of issues. But thanks so much for listening. Now, if you want to support the show, you can, of course, do so by donating. We do very much appreciate that. And you can do that at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're epicenterbtc. And uh, we do very much appreciate it and really helps new people find the show if you leave us an iTunes review. And now, uh, finally, we send out a newsletter every Friday. Uh, and you can sign up for that at epicenterbitcoin.com newsletter. Thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back next week. <laughs>